Uh, well, Mark, first of all, thank you very much for coming today. We are super excited to have you. We have uh, had great success with your signature Paul Reed Smith guitar. Uh, so we are excited to see the mysterious blue one behind me oh, yeah, that we have yet to see in the yeah. store. So that's awesome. Um, this is actually our first Paul Reed Smith event back uh, since the beginning of 2020. Awesome. So really cool. Back. Yeah, really cool yeah. to have it with you. So, um, is there anything that you would like our listeners to know about that you have going on that uh, you know you're currently on tour, you have a signature guitar, you're a great educator, a great player. What else do you have going on? Uh, what else do I have going on? Well, I guess the next thing that you can check out, I'll have a, a live record that's getting released at the end of August that features oh, my quartet called the Martin Thierry Group uh, that we recorded at the Iridium in New York City over two nights in March. Okay. And uh, really proud of that one. It's really cool. A snapshot as to <clears throat> excuse me what what we do live and how we interpret our music and um, really really great room where we start to get away there and capture it so that's awesome coming out yeah okay and you have quite a catalog of solo albums seven yeah seven okay include the EP yes that, that's a, that's a humongous catalog I guess so sometimes I, I feel like it's not big enough but yeah. <laughs> No, you have certainly a lot. Yeah. So tell me about the tour. Uh, it's good. It's going great. I, I kind of just started my portion of it. So the tour I'm on is with this band, Snarky Puppy. Uh, the tour actually started at the end of March, I think. Um, and I split it in half with our other guitar player, Bob Lanzetti. So we played uh, in New York City together. He did the first two weeks of the tour, and then I'm doing the second two weeks. So the, this New York show was like our halfway point. And Okay. Went home and I stayed on, so I'm finishing out the tour. We'll be done in a couple, about a week and a half. Okay. Yeah. I'm fascinated how that works because you have so many members and right. you're constantly yeah. rotating. Yeah. Is is that difficult? Um. It, yes and no. Uh. It, obviously, this is a lot of scheduling goes into it. And, sure. Um, for the player who comes in halfway through, like myself, for example, you know, the band is already 10 shows in, they've got a, a rapport going already, and maybe some arrangements have changed ever so slightly, and so I'm coming kind of cold. And of course, I know the material, but again, you know, you kind of have to get your sea legs. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, um, but the stuff's been going great so far. I'm having a really good time. And, uh, but it's fun for the audience because then they get to see a different amalgamation of the group every time we tour. So actually the, the formation that's out right now, the nine of us or ten of how many of us nine or ten of us uh, have actually never played together in that or like that uh, formation. Wow. So I mean, we've all played together obviously a thousand sure. gigs, but these specific ten ten people. Yeah. Is that nerve wracking? No. no. Like not at all? No. Wow. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I guess it keeps it exciting, too, yeah, right? Like, yeah, and the songs kind of sound different, go different places, depending on who's taken on the places. You know, okay. So tell me how you got started. Just in music in general? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, pretty simple story. Uh, my dad had, had a guitar <laughs> laying around the house, and I picked it up and started like, smashing around on it. I think I was probably 10 or 11. And uh, he said, well, hey, do you want guitar lessons or something? And, and, okay. And so he, I think he 
taught me a little bit, but then I, I uh, just took lessons from a friend's mom. <laughs> you know, okay. Uh, and then uh, had a couple other teachers growing up, and you know, started garage bands with my friends, and uh, it was a pretty basic kind of suburban uh, way of getting into music. Probably a lot of the folks that are walking around the store right now. Similar story. Yeah. Same story. Yeah. Uh, so. And that was yeah, that was the '90s, late '90s. So it was it was cool to be in a band, I guess. Yeah, Hopefully totally. It still is. I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> in here, it's definitely okay, cool. Good, great. <laughs> so, what made you take it to the next level and look at it as a career? Well, I I developed a passion for it very early on, in the sense that even when I was taking my first lessons, I was interested in learning songs, interested in writing songs, and playing in a band and all that sort of thing, but. By the time I had, I was about to finish college, um, was a, kind of when I started to quantify how I could have a career doing it. And the idea of like a, a being a session player or a freelance player, someone who could play lots of different styles of music with lots of different types of artists, bands, was something that was appealing to me. And so that's what I started doing right out of school. I have a degree in journalism, so I don't have a degree in music. Really? Uh, but I wasn't totally interested in going into communications and media right off the bat. You know? Sure. So I thought I would take a gander at becoming a professional guitar player, and I guess it worked. Worked out pretty well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Did you have any standout teachers along the way? I had a couple, yeah. Um, a gentleman that I studied with in high school for a couple of years was fantastic. His name was Gordon Kahn, and he was real instrumental in, in um, perfect, well, I should say, uh, teaching me proper technique and, and, and music theory. Okay. Uh, so I, I definitely got a good knowledge of that from studying with him. And, uh, he was actually a student of Joe Satriani's back in the 80s. Oh, that's awesome. He was like the big yeah. hot guitar teacher in the Bay Area. So that was exciting for me because I was really into a lot of that kind of music. And sure. We had that in common. And uh, I had a great teacher in college for a bit named Tom Burchill. Uh, who, he was the jazz guitar instructor at the college. And I was able to take lessons with him like as just an extra uh, elective credit. So okay. it wasn't part of my degree, but some kids take French. I took jazz guitar lessons. Yeah, sure. So it was great. Um, and he was awesome. And, and then I just had a load of mentors along the way. You know, my peers, people my, my age who play, who aren't even necessarily guitar players. You know, who have been great teachers. So. Yeah, that's awesome. A, a good teacher and a good music mentor make all the yeah, difference absolutely. in the world. I mean, it keeps you inspired keeps you playing and focused. That's really cool. So how did you get into becoming an educator yourself? People asked me to teach them things. Yeah, I mean, I, there was a period of time where I did teach uh, like a lot of private Skype lessons and things like that and, and, and used to do kind of one-on-ones uh, in person. But most of my educating now is like either master classes at universities or through uh, online courses that I've developed. Okay. Um, which are pretty fun to do because I can kind of really dig into the things that I think uh, my sound and yeah. how I express myself as a player and as a writer. And so I've done a couple different courses that people can get and you know they're all videoed with, with tablature and sure. whatnot. So that's kind of primarily my educational focus at this point. Okay. Rather than like the one-on-one guitar teaching stuff. Yeah, you, you can cover more and you I can get so. it to a wider group. Yeah, and well, and it's just the way my 
career is, I mean, I, I'm primarily a performer and a recording artist. So, sure. So to, to keep a roster of students is actually kind of impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the scheduling and the back end yeah, exactly. of it would be a lot of work. That's awesome. So who were your some of your early influences when you first got started? And then who are some of your influences that you look to now? Sure. Uh, well, it's funny that you mentioned that because as we were setting up, they were playing that song by the Bush Machine Head. Yeah. You know, and I remember like wearing out that riff. Yeah. Over yeah. And over again as a kid after been playing for six months or whatever it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of those kind of '90s grunge bands were real popular. Um, I got into Jimi Hendrix a lot, Eric Clapton, Santana, a lot of the '60s, '70s kind of guitar heroes. Okay. And then as kind of my technique developed, it was more Eddie Van Halen, Steve Vai, Eric Johnson, yeah. Zach Wilde, yeah. you know, um, a lot of those heroes from that decade. Um, and then I started getting into kind of more jazz-oriented players like Larry Carlton. Larry Carlton's fantastic. Uh, George Benson, for sure, Pat Martino, Charlie Hunter. I got into a lot of gospel guitar players like Spanky Alford, Jonathan DuBose. Um, Guys were doing a lot of R&B stuff, like Ray Parker Jr., Paul Jackson Jr., David Williams. Um, a lot of those guys are also session players. You know, okay. Steve Lukather, yep. Michael Landau. Um, but then, you know, uh, most, it's really funny, it's like a lot of my influences on are like my friends. Okay. <laughs> the people that I play in bands with. Um, so anyone that you see my name next to on a credit, Person Arky Bumpy record or Mark Latour record or Felix Fires record, for example, is a good influence. Okay. You know. So. Your whammy bar technique is awesome. Oh, thanks. Where is the left from Jeff Beck? Hey, that's where you came from? Okay. It's like a Jeff Beck slash Andy Timmons yeah, kind of like it's. Yeah, a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely Jeff Beck was a, and still is one of my all time favorite. Okay. But uh, the other, I mentioned previously, Rose, uh, this gospel player with a very specific kind of technique, which I, I learned from. And Jeff's way of playing melodies and that kind of thing with the bar was just such a cool yeah. thing. And I, I can't do that, so I had to kind of figure it out. Come out with your own way. Yeah, my own way of faking it. <laughs> Yours is, it sounds so full. I don't know how to, to really. Um, describe it for those who haven't heard, but uh, his whammy bar technique is absolutely awesome. It's really cool. Uh, what, what do you do for practice? Um, well, <laughs> I don't have a practice routine in that okay. uh, from this hour of the day to that hour I'm gonna work, I don't do that. Um, I, I find if I do try to practice, I'll try to write something maybe, uh, come up with a groove, a progression, something like that. Um, if I am like really working on technique, I'll do it in the context of whatever work I have to do. So I do a lot of my session work out of my home studio remotely. So uh, if someone sends me a track, for example, and they say, you know, the solo section is bars 72 to 100 or something like that, and it's this wacky set of changes, I know what I'm practicing that day. Right? Yeah. I to practice. I get, as long as I turn in the, the guitar solo on time, it sounds good. It doesn't they matter how there. Yeah. So you just loop that all day yeah, and come up with charging the guy by the hour, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, I can practice it as long as I want and get you know get get some new ideas that way. Uh, in, instead of or I should say in lieu of like having a dedicated practice time. Okay. Yeah. 
Did you ever have a dedicated practice routine? Uh, it was the afternoons, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> just running scales. Yeah, and just, uh, I mean, you know, I, I've, I'm pretty scatterbrained as it is in terms of concentrating on things, so even if I was focused on, you know, today I'm just going to work on the Lydian mode, I would end up somewhere else Doing by the end of the process routine yeah. anyway. So, okay. But I've spent a ton of time learning songs and transcribing, you know, parts and things like that, so it all kind of comes out of the wash, I think. Okay. That's, I'm glad to hear you say that because I struggle with similar things. Yeah. I used to make like the Steve I lists, you know, so if you had a day off, you'd make a list. You'd be like, okay, for eight hours today, I'm going to practice this. Hour one, wow. I'm going to do this. Hour two, I never got. Yeah, day. I've never had a free eight hours. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as a kid, I was involved in sports a lot, so. I was all guitar all the time. From so. one to five, you're at the track doing practice, and so it's like I had to kind of get in when I could do it. <laughs> well, tell me about your home studio. Okay, uh, it's upstairs. <laughs> um, there's not, it's not the most high-tech thing, but it does what I need it to do. I mean, I have a Mac computer, I have Apogee interfaces. Okay. Um, I use a couple different ways to record guitars. I have a few mics that I'll use for acoustics, assuming that you know there's no airplane flying at overhead or something. Uh, but I use a Kemper amp. And then sometimes I'll mic a cabinet. Um, but most of the styles of stuff that I do, I wouldn't say call for the sound of a room necessarily. So in that respect, having a plug-in or a Kemper is perfect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what operating software do you use? Uh, I use what? Logic. Okay. Yeah. Been a Logic user forever because um, I started on GarageBand. Well, I started on Pro Tools. And it's too hard. Learned how to use it. And I was like, "This is impossible." <laughs> when they came out with GarageBand, I'm like, "This is easy. Yeah, Why I don't we just use this?" Like, I, I didn't realize that it wasn't quote unquote professional. <laughs> but by the time I knew what professional was, they had created Logic, yeah. which is considered professional. Yeah. So that's what I use, and uh, it's great. I, I, yeah, I like using it. Yeah, it's fairly easy in the terms of recording software. I feel like some you have to be an engineer yeah. to understand. Sure. And I buy those books. It's like, you know, Pro Tools for Dummies. Yeah. And you try to use them as a reference. You're but Logic is always, yeah, yeah, Logic is always <laughs> the easier way to go. What about your guitar collection? Well, uh, there's quite a few of them. <laughs> That's good. I have them all. Well, I shouldn't have all of them. I have a fair amount of them displayed uh, so that they can be accessed simply for uh, for recording use. Um, but yeah, there's quite a few PRS guitars, obviously. Um, oh gosh, there's like a couple Fenders, a uh, couple Don Grosh, a couple very small, unique builders, okay. uh, several baritones, a couple basses, a few acoustics, a 12-string mandolin. Oh, that's an interesting uh, instrument. Ukulele, yeah. Um, so there's a there's I you know you can never have too many guitars. Right? That's right. Good. There you go. We're gonna quote you on that. That's right. <laughs> so tell me about the development of your <coughs> signature model. All right. Well, uh, I had formed a relationship with PRS a few years prior to that. Um, I was working uh, playing their five nine four McCarty five nine four models and doing a little bit of work with their Sun Zero amps. Yep. Okay. And they actually approached me 
Oh, with the idea to do a signature. Yeah, that's that's it. Basically, because yeah, they knew I was, you know, kind of like a built on Strat yeah, style yeah, player that. primarily, and they wanted to expand that line with their product because they had had so much success with the Silver Sky. Sure. And uh, so, you know, right off the bat, it wasn't like, hey, we're going to make another Silver Sky, just put your name on it. It was like, you know, you like bolt on guitars, what do you want to do? Uh, and so that's pretty much how it started. Okay. Um, I flew up there a few times and we chopped a bunch of wood and you know made good ideas and made bad ideas. <laughs> tried to, I have it's really funny. I have a box, two boxes actually, in my house of different bodies and wood pieces that were sprayed different colors because we were trying to get really color. yeah like uh, this one the amaryllis. I have a whole bunch of those at home. They're all different shades of red. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> Some of them are like orange actually, which looked pretty neat. Uh, we had a couple of total fail failure color ideas that I thought would have been great, and then the way they came out, it was like, no. <laughs> well, part of the hard thing was is that it was coming up with an opaque color. Okay. That was sort of different, I guess you could say. And I had this idea. Part of the concept of this is that all the colors are named after and related to different species of flowers. Okay. So this is the sugar moon rose. Amaryllis is a, I think it's also kind of a rose, and then larkspur is a type of delphinium or something like that okay i learned a little bit about botany getting into this yeah. process but i but i had this one idea we'll probably have to do it as a private stock like flame burst thing because it's called shark skin agave which is a type of cactus oh. that goes from gray to green to purple that'd be awesome and i tried to do it as an opaque and it ended up just looking like dishwater <laughs> so i have like a box of these just terrible looking That's dishwater funny. gray kind of bodies and uh, Beverly was like, yeah, I don't think you're going to like it. Yeah, this isn't going to work. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, it was really fun coming up with the colors and, and you know, tweaking pickups and cap values and all that kind of stuff. So. What are some of the standout features that make it uniquely yours or that make it super comfortable to you? Well, the neck shape is unique to, to me. Okay. Um, we started with a pattern regular and then modified it to kind of fit where my hand was feeling it. Um, it's a 10-inch radius, all up and down, 25 and a half-inch scale, um, which is pretty unique for PRS. Um, the bridge is a two-post trim, which is very unique for PRS. The only other guitar that has that is the SE Silver Sky. Okay. Uh, SSH configuration. What's cool about the humbucker is that we we actually don't do a coil tap. It's a series parallel. Okay. So it, you don't actually lose any output. Really, it just kind of changes the tone. Okay. The character. I mean, you, maybe a little bit, but. Not in a noticeable Not like a normal coil tap would be. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then we <clears throat> have a pretty neat pickup selecting process where you can get combinations of all three or different, you know, you can get neck and bridge if you want or like uh, neck with bridge run in series versus parallel. So I think there's like 11 something different actual wow. tones okay. you can get. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else is unique about it? really good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not unique. It's standard for PR. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's a different body shape, technically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great guitar. That's I mean, it's really good, versatile guitar. The neck feels great. Um, it still has the classic look to it, right? So for like a Fender player or a traditional Strat style player, it's yeah. kind of like the next evolution. So yeah, it's, really it's cool. not far off the base from familiar things, but it still looks like a PRS and 
something, I, the thing that I've been really, really proud of is seeing how it's been embraced by guitar players of all genres. Yeah. Um, there's an indie rock band in Canada that's playing. The guitar player from Morris Day and the Time is playing one. The guitar player from Janet Jackson is playing one. Wow. The guy who's in Deep Purple now is playing one. So we've got metal, R&B, funk, indie yeah. rock. Uh, there's a gentleman playing one with a country artist. So it's all over the map, which I was like, great. That's, that's great, that's yeah. exactly what yeah. I wanted to have. Yeah. And that kind of fits your playing style, too. I think so. You're, you're yeah. fairly unique from, from your collection of yeah. seven records. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned earlier the Kemper. Um, that style of product, I feel like, has really changed well, recording, live performance, um, everything, really. What, what do you think? about those kind of things as opposed to pedal boards and, and yeah. amp configurations well, and stuff? I use a Kemper uh, solely as an amp. I don't actually really use many of the onboard effects. I'll run a pedal board into a Kemper. Okay. Uh, but I think as far as flexibility, they really can't be beaten, especially in the studio. Yeah. For most projects. I mean, I've put a Kemper on almost, well, since I got one, <laughs> they're on almost all of my records in some, some way, shape, or form. Um, we did actually the last Snarky Puppy record. Everyone was playing a Kemper almost. Wow. Even the keyboardists. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so all three guitar players, the violinist, and then I think two of the key. I think one of the road. Two of the roads went through a Kemper and a clavinet. Okay. That was actually a really fun process because our clavinetist Bobby Sparks loves loud distorted amps, and so I had to go through and I found like some old Marshall Plex yeah. profile. <laughs> That's what he used. Uh, ended up ended up sounding like a guitar. <laughs> Do you have a, like a go-to amp preset that you use? I have several actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just kind of depending on the song. Okay. Um, there's a guy in Nashville named Michael Britt who's the guitar player for the band Lone Star, big country band, uh, and he has a side gig making profiles. So oh, that's cool. He's got a ton of really cool ones from you know different kinds of amps. And stuff. Yeah. It all just depends on the song. Yeah. There's so many good profiles out there that you can get. Like, I'm always chasing the different Van Halen tones. Oh, sure. Yeah. And those things, I mean, man, they come so close, especially the obscure ones. Like, I was like the 90s Van Halen tone. Mm, wow. Like that full stereo spread. Yeah, and down and yeah down. and you can get it from that. Yep. It's amazing. I have a few 5150s that are pretty good. Uh, but a lot of Mike's um, Fender profiles are very good. Um, Divide by 13 is a couple different you know, okay. boutique. Yeah, sure. You know, 6L6 type thing, so. Okay. Yeah. So, from your Kemper, you're going to your pedal board. What's on your pedal board? Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's a lot. lot. That's one of I have two boards. This is kind of like the main touring board um, if I don't have to fly with it every day. Okay. Uh, so, it goes in that hard case and goes on the, on the trailer. Um, but then I have another board that's a little bit smaller that fits in a rolling laptop case that I can bring plane put on my seat if I need to but um, I guess long story short I use a lot of J Rocket audio designs overdrive products um, I have a chorus pedal out with Jackson audio that I've been using a bunch uh, I use a lot of TC electronic stuff for verbs and delays sure what else is on there uh, MXR stuff for octaves and phase shift and things like that. Uh, this board has a Line 6 M5 on it still. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. Um, they ain't broke, don't fix it. That's right. Uh, what else is over there? Um, oh, this cool 
funky overdrive. It's kind of like a fuzz uh, by this company called Westerland that's, that's owned by a good buddy of mine that just came out like today or something. It's very new. Okay. I think maybe the name show was their release or something, but uh, it's a neat pedal. It's like, a, I would, yeah, I would liken it to an overdrive, almost like a fuzz. Okay. And um, some cool Walrus audio delays. They always make good stuff. There's a Keeley delay over there. It's a Walrus tremolo. And a Pigtronics octave fuzz. Wow. Okay. Board, yeah. So is your board constantly changing? Are you one of those kind of guys? Yeah, like, kind of. Always yeah, changing. The, the top row changes quite a bit. I mean, I usually keep the J Rocket stuff just because I, I swear by their overdrives. Man, I just I don't know, man. I can't. I can't do a gig without. It. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They're not paying me to say that, um, but. Yeah, I'm always swapping out other things like that, which is, and everybody always is like, how come you don't get a mini switcher controller? And I was like, because I have to repatch everything every time I change my mind about it. And you're changing stuff all the time. Changing my mind all the time. So I'd rather do a little bit of tap dancing and maybe make a mistake or two. And it's fun, right? Yeah. Getting the new pedals inspiring and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's cheaper than buying new guitars every week, right? That's true. (laughs) Well, we have one question that we always ask everybody that is a guest. Tell me about the most epic gear fail that you had <laughs> on stage. Gosh. We've heard some good ones. Which one? Uh, uh, most epic gear fail. Uh, I'm trying to think. The one that stands out, and this might not even be the worst one, but the, <laughs> the one that stands out in my mind is... Um, this was several years ago on a snarky puppy tour. We were playing at this venue. <laughs> The Hammersmith yeah. Apollo, maybe? It was a big place. Oh, yeah. Like, Two, three thousand yeah. people. Okay. And I think it was a sold-out show. And uh, I had some big moment, a guitar solo moment, where I don't... Maybe the drummer was playing, but it was primarily me. Okay. And the board just cut out. Well, I don't even know what it was to this day. It just stopped working. Wow. <coughs> I don't know if like, a power... Something came unplugged or a cable died or whatever. And, and and that was it. And I sort of just had to like raise my hands and be like, guys, laugh, I can't continue this and laugh. And I think someone else took over the solo and I probably just like got down on my knees and started punching the board or something until it came back in. You know? <laughs> That's usually how I fix things. I just kick it until it, <laughs> it starts working again. Um, that wasn't that board. This was okay, all right. I just want to make sure yeah. you'll be ready for the clinic later. Yeah, if you start well, hitting my hand or yeah, something. No, no, no. But that's, the, I mean, yeah, it's like, Pash, it, uh, it doesn't, whatever, I don't care if your rig was made by NASA, a patch cable will still go down. It's that's something. it. It's, yeah. It's just those things. Yeah. Or a 9-volt comes unplugged. Yep. Or, yep. you know. Or somebody trips over the... Your cable yeah, just happens to go bad. Yeah. I, I do, I have fried a, a power supply before with the wrong voltage. That was embarrassing. <laughs> that was nerve-wracking. We were doing a gig. This was my trio. We were playing a show in Italy. And uh, this was maybe 10 minutes before we were supposed to go on. And I had plugged my pe- pedal board into the power transformer converter thing. Because, you know, they're on 220 over there. And sure. 110, yada, yada. And for whatever reason, the transformer was running really hot. I thought something was wrong. Everything is, was working. I was like, this is really, really hot. hot. Like, that's something's right. probably wrong. So I flipped the switch on the back of it, which then made it wrong. Oh. <laughs> and and the, the board goes, like, it made an audible sound, and then smoke came out of it. And I was like, oh, this is bad. 
And so I think I had one working, I had one overdrive, one J Rocket overdrive, and that was it for that gig. Into oh. a Fender Twin with broken reverb. Oh, it's a trio gig. And I, you know, I rely on a fair amount of gain and delay and stuff sure. for my gig. And there was a very famous jazz drummer in the audience. Uh, he didn't leave, <laughs> but 